You're listening to Tokyo Public Radio. There's a William Gibson novel which introduces the phrase mirror world. And so the mirror world is when you go to another country, in this case, England, and everything is sort of the same, except there are these micro differences. Things are flipped left to right. The plugs look slightly different. And so because in general life in America is left-right symmetric, you don't really notice these differences. But every now and again you stumble upon one, or you get some vague shifting sense in your mind that maybe there should not be switches on the plugs near the outlet, because that's sort of strange and a bit hyper. Tokyo is not the mirror world, because the main feature of the mirror world is that on a large scale, when you zoom out and you don't look too closely, the mirror world looks like the ordinary world. You might say that while on small scales, Britain is incredibly different from the United States, right? And by small scales, I just mean this in this, you know, sort of physics sense of materially small objects are different in these two countries. And they're often radically different, right? So it's very hard to find an ungrounded plug in the United Kingdom. And the telephone ringing noise is unpleasantly shifted. And you can't get there from here. But when you push away from those differences and start coarse graining the United Kingdom, it starts looking pretty American. Whether it's a post-war phenomenon or not, in Japan, actually, on small scales, everything looks pretty American, right? You can take your alarm clock radio from Minnesota and plug it into the wall here, and it doesn't explode. And in fact, actually, not even the voltage, but also the frequency is the same, and so your alarm clock will actually still keep good time. Although apparently, this is different on the west coast of Japan because there they use 50 hertz as opposed to 60. So be careful when you ship an alarm clock to Japan. So you might say that where Britain has a UV divergence, right, this is what we say in physics, an ultraviolet divergence where on the smallest scales things become crazy. Tokyo actually has an infrared divergence where it's on the largest scales that things get crazy. You somehow, as you average more and more normal things together, you are driven to some state that is clearly not America, and it's not perturbatively close to America. Gertrude Stein. Well, it's obvious that many recognize you, but you're coming to the United States to lecture, Miss Stein, implies that there are many people who will be able to comprehend your ideas. Just where, then, does four saints and three acts fit into your scheme of lecturing, which ought to be at least understandable, and that is, well, that's more than most of us can say for your opera. Look here. Being intelligible is not what it seems. After all, all these things are a matter of habit. Take what the newspapers say about what you call the New Deal. If you just know ordinary English, you do not have the slightest idea what the newspapers are talking about. Everybody has their own English, and it is only a matter of anybody getting used to an English, anybody's English, and then it's all right. After all, when you say they do not understand four saints, what do you mean? Of course they understand, or they would not listen to it. You mean by understanding that you can talk about it in the way that you have the habit of talking, putting it in other words. But I mean by understanding enjoyment. If you enjoy it, you understand it. And lots of people have enjoyed it, so lots of people have understood it. You see, that's what my lectures are 
It would be a simple way of telling everybody this thing, that if you enjoy it, you understand it. And so if I'm telling you something about what, why my punctuation is, why my so-called repetition is, what my prose is, what my poetry is, what my plays are, what my English literature is, what my pictures are, and I'm telling them all this simpler as I tell everything, you will see, they will understand it because they enjoy it. Well, I think I understand. And now further about this culture, your life has been amazingly full of interest. You've done anything in the archaeology of Alice and Talker? Yes, my life has been, and it's full of interest. Because I like it all. It's all wonderful. And one is not more wonderful than the other. Anybody, anybody needs to be wonderful. That's all there is to it. And if you are wonderful and they are wonderful, the world is full of interest. That is natural enough. In your biography of Alice and Talker, I told all this one way. In Portraits and Fairs, the book the Random House is bringing out, and I'm so pleased that it's coming out just as I am here, I thought about it in another way. You see, in Portraits and Fairs, they are collected together all the portraits that I've made of anyone over all these years. And what I mean by portraits is this. When I know anybody well, they are all something to me. Each one is. That's natural. But then there has to come a moment when I know all I can know about anyone. I know and I know it all at once. And then I try to put it down. Put down on paper all that I know of anyone. Their ways, the sound of their voice, the movement of their voice, their other movements, their character, what they do. And you do it all at once is very difficult. Just anybody try to do it and you can see what I mean. And in this book, Portraits and Prayers, I've tried to do it. And I've done it in a great many ways. Sometimes I felt that I've done it. And you must not think that you do not understand because you cannot say it to yourself in other words. If you have something happening, you do understand. No matter what you say to yourself and others about not understanding. Really and truly, that is really and truly true. So every nation has a set of myths about what make it a nation. And what's interesting about Japan, apparently, is that this is an ongoing project in the same way we consider it to be an ongoing project in America. So the creation of books, and books of all levels of sophistication. So there are books out there that will tell you that the Japanese came from a different kind of monkey, or that deep features of the Japanese language have never been seen in any other language in the history of communication, animal or human. The standard line, and a Japanese person will tell you this right away, that the Japanese are very conformist and the Americans are very individualistic. This takes you about 10 feet down the path of understanding. And if you want to get any further, you have to forget you've ever heard this distinction. There's a writer, David Marks, ex-Lampoon guy, who has a wonderful blog post where he discusses orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. And this is now, okay, going to be the axis upon which you place cultures. And orthodoxy is when you do things for the right reasons. So you have an explanation for why something that you did fits into a larger project, for example, that you might have. Whereas orthopraxy is doing things the right way. And, of course, as with all good binaries, one's life is an oscillation between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. In the States, I think we often think of orthopraxy as important and as a way of relying upon some intuitive ancient wisdom. So, of course, in Japan, the emphasis is on orthopraxy. And there's no place that you see this better, I think, than in 
cafes in Tokyo. And it's a wonderful example, I think, in part because it shows the way in which the orthodoxy, orthopraxy axis is at an oblique angle to the individualism conformity axis. Because when you go to a Tokyo cafe, 95% of the things and events in that cafe have absolutely nothing to do with providing you tea or coffee. And yet at the same time, they seem to be absolutely necessary to this cafe, right? This cafe would cease to exist. It might physically still be there, but it would be functionally, it would be like a dead man as opposed to a living, breathing human being. So I'm in one of these cafes and I'm reading Ken Wilson's papers on renormalization from the 1970s. And these are... These are hard papers. They're beautiful papers, but they are also very hard papers. And so in the same way, you know, if you're in a relationship and it's not going so well, see if someone else catches your eye. I was in this cafe, the Moi Cafe, um, spelt like the French for month and probably pronounced here Moishu. And I was confronted by this beautiful phenomenon because the cafe was this warm green light because they were surrounded by trees and it had the old-fashioned Japanese sliding partition structure. And so there were on the outside all of these glass windows where the summer light was streaming through the leaves and, and onto the window and then through into the room and onto you know my printouts. And I was looking at the window, and there was this beautiful feature of which was that anything that was more than about 6, 12 inches away from the screen on the other side was just a blur. You could see nothing of it except its colors. And so that's how you got this green wall effect. You couldn't actually see these leaves. But if a leaf came close to the window, suddenly it became sharp in outline, and you could even see the veins on the leaf. There was a bit of a breeze, and so as the breeze came in, the green would have a little bit of structure to it, and then the breeze would disappear, and the leaves would fall away from the window again, and it would go back to being the suffused green. And so whether out of a restless curiosity or, and more likely out of intellectual insecurity, my inability to understand renormalization, I wanted to solve this problem. What feature of this window gave it this beautiful phenomenology? And it turns out that this is actually, there's two ways to build a window, I think, that can do this. And the first way is perhaps easier to understand and the one that is not in action at the Moir Cafe, but it would be in action in one of these ancient British houses, you know, when you go have scones with your friend in your, you know, with Prince William, and those old glass windows where people couldn't really make a flat pane of glass. And so there's a certain decorrelation across the window. So as you move from point to point, the window will be at slightly different angles. So it has sort of waves to it, and it has a certain randomness to it. If you think about this, if you put something up very close to such a window, you can actually see it quite clearly. But as you move it further and further away, the light rays from that object diverge, and they hit the window at different points, and the window at different points is a slightly different angle. And so as you move it away, the light rays are shifted in direction and jumbled up a little bit. And so the leaves would indeed, as you pulled this away, become more and more blurry. So I was very pleased with this. You know, I started working out these other properties. What kind of coherence length does the window have to have? And surface of the window can't actually be a random walk. There has to be some cutoff at some point or else the window would wrap around itself. But it turns out in this case, that's not what's happening. Because if you touch this window, it certainly has irregularities in it. 
but the irregularities are extremely small scale. The window has, it's a plastic window, has these tiny ridges, like a washboard. And so the way this two-dimensional washboard functions, these ridges are tiny. You can barely see them in the shadows they make. You can feel them with your fingertips. Is that for an object very close, the light rays pass in between the ridges on this washboard. As you pull this object away, you maintain the clarity of the image. It's dimmed slightly, but it's still clear. Until you reach a critical value when the diverging rays are now hitting the window at a sufficiently oblique angle that they pass through the ripples of this washboard multiple times. And as soon as they do that, their directionality is completely scrambled. So in contrast to the Prince William window, where information is gradually being filtered out by the imperfections, here you have a system whereby close in, the information is perfect, and there is a near discrete change where you go from having most of the information about the leaf present to you to having none of it. There's a certain aspect of the nostalgic American experience that loves the old, wavy, medieval window. The Grand Tour is all about the yellow dog and I can't believe princes couldn't see what was out in the yard, in their beautiful yard. And we tend to disdain the chintzy plastic corrugated windows of the Moi Cafe. But it turns out, right, that these two very different things, one, this imperfect process whose very imperfections we consider to be a mark of authenticity on the one hand, and on the other hand, this highly structured, highly constructed object, cheap, but how these two things in the end actually produce very similar human experiences. You've been listening to Tokyo Public Radio here broadcasting from senior spring post-AP examination AP physics class dot let's have seminar out on the lawn today backslash backslash.